David still ring true and relevant in our lives thousands of years later. I pray that you will be with us in the good and in the bad, as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. I hate tying up loose ends. You know what I'm talking about? Loose ends. You're, you're trying to go away on vacation. But you just have a few loose ends you have to take care of before you leave on that trip. You've got to water the garden. You've got to mow the lawn. You've got to arrange for somebody to pick up your mail if you're gone long enough. You have to get all packed. If you're like my grandma, you want to get the house clean before you leave on vacation. So when you come home, you feel good about things. Got a vacuum. Loose ends, right? Loose ends are even worse when you're moving. You think, oh, how much stuff could a person actually have in this small of a place? How much stuff could I actually have in my 450 square foot apartment? You can actually have a lot. And then there's all sorts of loose ends when it comes to cleaning your place. Dirt and, and stuff that you need to clean that you never thought of having to clean. And it always seems to take longer than you expect. Loose ends, those things that are left to be done at a later time. Today in our story, we find David as he's just about to die. He has some final thoughts for his son Solomon, but he also has kind of some loose ends that he wants Dave, uh, Solomon to take care of. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the last written words of David. Here we get the last recorded words of David to his son, and, and in the narrative, he actually does die. And we find these unpleasant loose ends that Solomon needs to address and take care of. And so we go to 1 Kings chapter 2 in our Bible study this morning. 1 Kings chapter 2. Sermon title for today is The Three Men That Solomon Killed. So maybe you'll have an idea what these loose ends involve. These are actually the only three uh, that are recorded being killed by Solomon. Uh, his reign was one relatively free from bloodshed. But here at the very beginning, even before that famous prayer where he asks God for wisdom, he has some difficult situations to deal with. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. The time came near for David to die. He gave a charge to Solomon, his son. Verse 2. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, show yourself a man, or the old King James, quit you like a man. Translation, be a man. Interestingly enough, this is a phrase that David heard from the mouths of Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. He was hanging out with the Philistines at that time, they were about to go into battle, and he was going to go with them. Unfortunately, uh, he was spared from having to do that because they said, oh, he might be a traitor. But the Philistines said to the other guys, be a man. Fight like a warrior. Maybe that's where David got this phrase. Or maybe it was just a common phrase of the day. But now he turns it and he points it towards his son. He says, son, be a man. And notice how he defines what being a man is all about. Verse 3. 
Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do, wherever you go. David, on his deathbed, speaking to his son Solomon, defines true manhood in relationship to following God, obeying God, keeping God's commands. Verse 4 basically says, if you do this, things will go well for you. Things will go well for our beginning of a dynasty. But then we get to these loose ends. And, and the, the type of things that can kind of trouble us. There are some interesting stories in the Old Testament that are a little unsettling in our stomach sometimes. I want to do a whole sermon series on some of these troubling stories at a point in the future, but we're going to just touch on a couple of elements here today. Um, And I'm not sure that I'll answer all the questions that may be in your mind, but I think there are some good, solid principles that we'll see here that will help us understand a very different time and a very different place. Look at verse 5. Here to loose ends. Now you yourselves know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me. You know what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime, as if in battle, and with that blood stained belts around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but don't let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. Here, one of his last words that we have recorded to Solomon is concerning Joab. And we might question, well, what, are, what are David's motives here? Is this a personal vendetta? Is he just has this really big grudge against Joab and now he's passing it off to his son to kind of carry out some justice here? There could be some of that involved. But I think there's a deeper issue at play. No doubt David knew that uh, some of these men were sometimes faithful, other times not faithful. So no doubt David wanted Solomon to have a secure foundation to his reign. But I think the bigger issue that's being presented here is an issue of justice. Joab here is a murderer. He killed two men. Actually, he killed more than that. Uh, David doesn't even mention how Joab killed Absalom, his son. Joab doesn't mention how, or David doesn't mention how Joab went along in the rebellion of chapter 1, where Adonijah was trying to set himself up as king. Here he just mentions two people who Joab killed in time of peace. He murdered them, and there never had been anything done justice-wise to bring these men to justice. Here David reminds Solomon about this. Justice is a huge concept. We see it not only in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. And if you look in your own heart, you see it in your own heart. You go to the bank, or you go to some, uh, some place where you need to stand in line, and you're standing there in line, you're waiting, and then somebody cuts in front of you. There's somebody who says to their friend, hey, come on, you know, it's all right. And then five people hop in line in front of you, and all of a sudden you're aware that your heart longs for justice, Right? You've been there. You're smiling. You recognize that. Because it's not fair. You're at a four-way stop. And somebody, instead of stopping, they just kind of 
speed through in front of you and you say, that's not fair. There's something embedded in our heart that longs for justice. Maybe you're driving down the road and somebody's going really, really fast on the road, too fast. This happened to me the other day. A couple weeks ago, this car goes through the intersection super fast and I'm thinking, wow, that's way too fast. And then justice caught up with them. (laughs) And as I drove by them on the side of the road, I'll admit, I was enjoying that moment of justice. Probably more than I should have. We long for justice. Justice actually is a central part of God's character. Central part of God's character. Moses, Exodus 34, asked God, he said, God, show me your glory. God said, you can't handle all my glory, but I'll put you in this crevice of the rock and I'm going to put my hand over you and you can just see my back as I walk by. But there in Exodus... Chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, it says this, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Here we see a picture of God's mercy and compassion. One of these great features of God's character. And then we see the strong element of justice. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the chil- and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and the fourth generation. And we're realizing today, scientifically, how hereditary things are passed on, even decisions you make while you're an adult, through uh, new uh, discoveries in genetics. We're seeing that can shape the genetics uh, of your children. And so they carry on these same tendencies. They, too, um, get punished for similar sins that they commit. But it says, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is a God of justice. We see it in Exodus. We see it in Proverbs 11.21. The wicked will not go unpunished, but the righteous will go free. We see it in that famous verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? But to do what? Justly and to love what? Mercy. And to walk humbly with our God. Here, God is, is saying, I want you to have these characteristics. Be just, but also be merciful. And we see the tension that we sometimes have between justice, which demands punishment, and mercy, which forgives offenses. It's not just in the Old Testament that justice is a strong theme. Even Jesus, summarizing the law in Matthew 23, 23, He said, basically, the weightier matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faith. So justice is a very strong element in the Bible. And it was very strong, and it was demonstrated in this story. Joab is a murderer. He murdered two men. Men that David didn't want to have murdered. When Abner was murdered, David mourned, and he wept, He went into a time of mourning. He didn't eat for a period of time. He wanted the people to know this was not okay. So then the question is asked, well, why didn't David just take care of it right then? As you study that story where Joab uh, murdered Abner, we see David admitting he wasn't strong enough at that time to bring Joab to justice. It was a time of political 
turmoil. David didn't have the throne very securely in his grasp, and he felt powerless against Joab and his brother. But he, he prayed down. He said, may God bring justice in this situation. He asked God to do something, as if pointing to a future day when Joab would get what was headed towards him. But we see also a very strong concept of, of blood. When somebody is murdered in the Old Testament, there's a very strong uh, element here where if that is not made right, bad things can happen. Uh, because justice is so important to God. And justice is the foundation upon which a society is built. So in Numbers 35, 33, God basically tells the people, don't let the land become polluted by blood. If somebody is murdered, there needs to be justice. Life for life. A fair but a just punishment needs to happen. Otherwise, the land will become polluted. Otherwise, there could be unintended consequences. David knew about those unintended consequences. Saul, while he was alive, killed some Gibeonites, unjustly murdered them. Nothing was ever done about it. Finally, during David's reign in 2 Samuel 21, we see that there's a famine for three years. David finally goes to God and says, God, what's going on? And God says, there's an unjust situation that's been lying open for too long. You need to take care of it. So justice came about. Now some of these stories, as we look at the definition of justice in that time, it's, it's kind of weird and kind of troubling to us today. Um, and I'm not going to answer all the questions we have about justice in the Old Testament or the New Testament today, but there's something that I think we need to understand about justice. Number one, we may question some of these stories, but as I read the stories, I don't find the people during that day who lived in that time saying, God, this is an unjust punishment. Uh, we, don't, we don't see that. In fact, a lot of the times, D David is praying in the Psalms, God, why aren't you punishing the people? They deserve it. So as we look at what the people in the day are saying about justice, they're not saying, at least not that I've found so far, they're not saying, this is unjust. They accept it as just. And an interesting thing to note is there are times in which God works within the culture and the system to promote that which is just in that culture. For example, as you look at the laws in the Old Testament, you'll see the penalty for a man sleeping with his mother-in-law mother is death. However, by the time we get to the New Testament, that same situation happened in Corinth, and what was the penalty? The penalty was expulsion from the church. Two different times, the same offense, yet both were viewed as being just. Sometimes justice is a moving target. Uh, and so for us to always try and understand the Old Testament stories in the context of today's judicial system and today's way of looking at life, it's not necessarily the best way to go about it. We can do, talk a lot of, more on this subject, but I'm just going to plant that thought in your mind. Maybe we can have some conversations more about it. So nevertheless, David at the end of his reign, realizes there are some situations that are unjust. Joab has murdered at least two people. 
and more, and he's never been held to account. The second person he murdered was Amasa. Look at it there. Um, yeah, you see it there again in verse 5. He murdered Amasa. Amasa was appointed in Joab's place to be the commander of the army. And Joab didn't like that. And he took him out. And that was not right. Again, the question, why didn't David deal with it at that time? David had the armies. He had, he had control of the nation at the time. And probably one has to speculate that David, because of his sins, because of what he had done to Uriah the Hittite, that Joab knew about. Perhaps David felt crippled to do anything. There's a lot we could talk about in that whole story there. But at the end of his life, David realizes there are some situations that need to be fixed. Now we get to verse 7. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7. But show kindness to the son of Barzillai, the Gilead, of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table, they stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. Verse 8. And remember, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down from me by the Jordan, and he swore, and I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom, and you will know what to do by him. Bring his gray head head down to the grave in blood. Now verse 10, David rested with his fathers and he was buried in the city of David. So we have multiple situations. The first one concerning Joab. The second one concerning this other man who did good. Treat him kindly. And then Shimei, who was uh, rebelling against David. Treacherous against David. But as the story goes on, we first get to the case of Adonijah. Adonijah was Solomon's older brother. He had claimed to, to take the throne. He tried to take the throne in chapter 1, but his rebellion was squelched by some quick acting, and Solomon was crowned king in his stead. So Adonijah actually went to the temple, and he grabbed onto the horns of the altar, and his life was spared. Solomon said, as long as you are good and don't do evil, your life will be spared. The first, uh, there in chapter 1, verse 52. But now Adonijah, uh, he comes to the queen mother, to Bathsheba, and he has an interesting request. Look at it in verse 13. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Bathsheba asked him, do you come peacefully? After what he had just done in the rebellion, she had good reason to question whether he was coming peacefully. He answered, yes, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may say it, she responded. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king. But things changed. The kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him by the Lord. Now I have but one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. What's his request? He continued, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag, the Shunammite as my wife. Abishag was the young lady who had been called to serve King David in his ailing years. Um, this is an interesting case. Uh, Josephus, the great Jewish historian, actually says that his physicians recommended this. There was thought that having a young woman could help 
bring warmth and so forth. The Bible says that David did not sleep with him, or with her. Um, but nevertheless, she appears to be kind of brought into uh, David's royal line as a concubine, as it were. So Adonijah is saying, I just have one request. I had the whole kingdom, but it was God's will that my brother Solomon be the king. So just give me one thing. I want Abishag as my wife. She's recorded as being very beautiful. And Bathsheba said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go talk to the king about this. Not sure whether she suspected anything or not. So she goes to the king. The king brings in a throne, sits her down at his right hand, uh, the, the side of power, treats his mother very respectfully, and she says, I just have one request for you, son. Uh, would you please give Abishag to Adonijah as his wife? And Solomon gets very upset because he recognized in this request another plot to try and take the throne. In that culture, basically, if you took the harem or the wives of the previous king, you were basically claiming to be king yourself. It was kind of this alpha male kind of a thing. And you can think back to a couple of instances. David was given the wives of King Saul. Also, when Absalom was rebelling against King David, what did he do to David's wives? He did some shameful things in a public setting as a way of saying, I'm now the king, I'm the boss, listen to me. And so Adonijah is trying to, to get the kingdom one more time in a very sneaky way. He's going through the mom, he's hoping his plot will not be discovered. But Solomon sniffs it out and recognizes it for what it is. Verse 22, Solomon answered his mother, Why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he's my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar the priest and Joab son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, May the God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay for his, with his life for this request. And now, as surely as the Lord lives, who has established me securely on the throne of my father David and has founded a dynasty for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. We need to remember that Adonijah had already rebelled. He'd gone to the temple. He'd, he'd held on to the altar. He'd begged for forgiveness. And Solomon said, yes, as long as you do what's right, you'll be okay. And now we find him turning his back on the mercy that had been offered to him, plotting for the throne once more, and Solomon says, that's it. That's enough. Thus died Adonijah. Now we get to Abiathar the priest, because Abiathar had gone along. He was the priest who'd gone along in this previous rebellion. To Abiathar the priest, he said, go back to your fields in Anathoth. You deserve to die but I will not put you to death now, for you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father, David, and shared all my father's hardships. Abiathar was removed from the priesthood, but his life was spared. The Bible actually says this is a fulfillment of a prophecy made to Eli. Because of Eli's mistakes, a prophecy was made saying, your sons and your line will no longer be priests. Abiathar or, was the last remaining priest in this line of Eli, he was removed. He was allowed to live. But then this news reaches Joab, the news about Adonijah. 
Verse 28, when the news reached Joab, who had conspired with Adonijah, though not with Absalom, he fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. Do you see the picture on the front of your bulletin today? Depicting Joab there in the temple, grabbing onto the horns. And we were talking in Sabbath school class not long ago about this story. We referenced the story. And there's actually some historical like precedent for this. God, back in Exodus, uh, apparently designated that spot as a place to go to in case you accidentally killed somebody. In case you accidentally killed somebody, God said, you can come here. But if you murdered the person, if it was a willful killing, this is not going to be any sort of place of refuge. You can read about that, Exodus 21, 12 to 14. So when Joab goes there, he goes there not as somebody who is innocent, but as somebody who's guilty, whose justice has been long deferred. And now he realizes uh, his end is near. And indeed, King Solomon, verse 31, commanded Benaiah, do as he says, strike him down and bury him. So clear me and my father's house of the guilt of the innocent blood that Joab shed. This again reminds us, it's pointing back to justice, clearing them of any guilt. Even as far back as Genesis in the story of Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel, and in Genesis 4, God says, the blood of Abel cries out to me from the ground. God hearing this unjust situation realizes something needs to be done. Or you can go to Revelation chapter 6 where there's this symbolic image of the souls who had been slain and they're depicted underneath the altar crying out as it was, as it were, how long, O Lord, until you judge us and you avenge our blood? From Genesis to Revelation, this question, God, there's injustice in our world, there's injustice in my life, when are you going to take care of it? Sometimes justice comes swiftly, and sometimes justice is long delayed. Sometimes justice is brought about through human beings. Other times, we just have to wait for justice to be brought about by the God, by God on a future day. So thus dies Joab. There's one more person, though. David mentioned Shimei. Verse 36. Then the king sent for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there. But don't go anywhere else. The day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be upon your head. Basically, he said, you can live in Jerusalem. I'm going to let you live. And Shimei actually respected this. You look at verse 38. He says, what you say is good. Your servant will do as my lord the king has said. He admits, this is good. I'm I'm okay with this situation. This arrangement works for me. And it worked for about three years, and then Shimei left the city. And when he gets back, Solomon says, why did you leave? You know our agreement. You know our deal. Probably Solomon wanted to keep him there because Shimei was this rebellious guy. And if he goes back to his home country, his home area, he's more liable to start an insurrection as he'd shown himself um, 
more than willing to do when David was in exile. Refusing the mercy he had been offered, Shimei now is put to death. Verse 44, the king said to Shimei, you know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for all your wrongdoing. But King Solomon will be blessed and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. The king gave the order to Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down and killed him. Now the kingdom was firmly established in Solomon's hands. So we come to the end of this chapter. We see these three people, Joab, Adonijah, Shimei, killed. But we also see the system of justice at play. Deeds done long ago, or mercy rejected and justice accepted. And probably some of you are thinking, why in the world are we studying these depressing stories? This is terrible. I just want to go eat ice cream now to make myself feel better. I tell you, number one reason why we're studying it is because it's in the Bible. If God didn't want it in the Bible, he would have let it be omitted. I was tempted just to skip over this. Because it's hard to sometimes wrestle with some of these troubling stories. We just want everything to be like roses and rainbows and mermaids and unicorns and all those things, right? Butterflies, yeah. Good stuff. So why do we wrestle with this? We wrestle with it because it's there. And as we wrestle with it, we see a God that is committed to doing just. Committed to justice. And maybe in your life, people have done unjust things against you. And maybe some of you are thinking, God, what are you going to do about this? Stories where we examine the justice of God, the justice of the leaders he allowed to be in place, remind us that someday God will make all things right. I'd rather leave all the justice up to him because it's very risky when you try and take things into your own hands, right? Uh, and in many cases, it's not even possible for us to restore justice. Leave it to the judicial system. When they get it wrong, we've got to say, God, you've got to make this right somehow. You've got to make it right. But we're reminded that our God is a God of justice, and someday God will make all things right. What kind of a God would we have if he never brought people to justice? If there never was any consequence for wrongdoing? If the rapists and murderers of the world could just go on doing what they want without anyone ever holding them to account? The Bible depicts a God who sometimes brings justice swiftly and other times waits for that day. When every knee will bow and say, God, you are just, you are right, and we accept the punishment that you're going to bring. So number one reason is because it's there. Number two, because we learn more about our God and his character of justice. But number three, I want to leave you with something a little more hopeful. I want to leave you with something that you can take home and, and take a little more courage into courage from. I want to go quickly to Hebrews. 
Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, describing this system that God established in the Old Testament, this sacrificial system. Hebrews 9, 22, it says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is how much forgiveness? There is none. This system, this sacrificial system, reminds us that it takes blood to forgive sin. Not because our God is a bloodthirsty God, but I think it's because we just can't grasp how terrible sin is unless it affects us in a very visceral, a very powerful way. And so as, as heart-wrenching as the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was, it was that way because it communicated just how serious the consequences of sin are. God, who, who, can, who can look at our world truly objectively, can see sin for what it is. We who, are, who have bought into sin are just deluded and we don't think that sin is that big of a deal. But God, who wants to offer us eternity, said there needs to be some way that these people can grasp how terrible sin is. What more terrible than the death of something young, pure, and innocent like a lamb? As you saw, those of you that toured Messiah's mansion, you got to see this ceremonial system that took place day by day, reminding them sin has horrible consequences. Our God is a God of justice, but also a God of mercy. But look there, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Day by day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Ultimately, those sacrifices couldn't deal with the sin problem. It merely pointed forward. But when this priest, referring to Christ as our high priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. As we look at these stories, we're reminded that justice and mercy, these two characteristics of God that seem to be opposed, they met in Christ at the cross. Because God is just, he can't not be just. And because he's merciful, he can't not be merciful. So how are you going to fix the sin problem? You take it upon yourself. And then you are able to extend mercy to anybody that wants it. We serve a good, just, and merciful God. Ephesians 1.7, it says, By the shedding of his blood, we have forgiveness of our sin. Through our mistakes, the blood of our sins cries out for justice. But praise God, there's been an answer. Jesus Christ and his righteous death. Several years ago, there was a young girl who needed some blood. She was at the hospital, losing blood. Nobody in her family was the right blood type. Unless she got some blood quickly, she was going to die. They tested everybody, and finally they tested the young brother, maybe about your age. And he had just the right blood type. They said to him, we're going to need some of your blood to give to your sister 
so that she can live. He accepted that. So as he lay there on the gurney there in the hospital, needle in his vein, taking the blood, eventually being transferred into her life, into her veins, he kind of had a sad look on his face, his face. And he turned to the doctor and he said, Doctor, how long until I die? Poor kid, he didn't realize when you give blood, you don't have to give all of it. You just give part of it so that the other person can live. But he was willing to give up his life. Our just God is also a merciful God who didn't just give part of his blood, he gave all of his blood. What will your response be today? What will it be each day? Let's pray. Dear God, we're so thankful that though you are just, you also are merciful. While we deserve to die for our sins, each one of us, you've already paid that penalty, and we don't have to go through with it. So again today, Father, my heart says, yes, I want to accept that. I need that cleansing, covering blood to fill my life and cleanse my life and make me new. Each one of us in our own hearts can say the same thing today, Lord. Please help us in this unjust world to be people who are not only just, but are also merciful. And when life isn't fair, may we trust in you to someday make all things new and make all things fair. This is our prayer. We thank you. And let all God's people say, Amen. Happy Sabbath. I'll see you soon.